A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic and by the broadcaster, Anne-Marie Batson. It hasn't taken long for the Premier League psychodramas to take hold following the World Cup. All eyes are on Chelsea and Graham Potter. I've been to see him to see how he's coping with the conjecture and controversy. He has two key games in the next four days, game at Fulham, followed by Palace at home. To be clear, I believe he deserves time and respect, yet we all know football. Struggle in those, Dom, and patience will start to wear extremely thin, won't it? Well, it will, and uh, I think you can actually see signs of that impatience already. The, The scenes at the Etihad Stadium... On Sunday, where you get the away support breaking out into a chorus of Roman Abramovich and even chanting Thomas Tuchel's name, that's a little indication of the the, the, the unsettling nature of the last, really, what, we're talking nine months at Chelsea, really since the sanctions came in back in March against Abramovich and his ownership. It's 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 a very, very, very unsettling time. And, and Graham Potter finds himself in the eye of that storm with a lot of people still seeking evidence that he is the right man to oversee the Chelsea rebuild. And it is a rebuild under new ownership with new players, a team and squad in transition. But I would, I would argue, as I think you've, you've suggested there that there's been so much upheaval at this club. It was akin really last season to a a team going into administration and having the guts of that, of that club ripped out. And then, a new manager thrust in and almost given the amount of money that's been spent in the period since you almost the sense on the outside is or you got to maintain the standards set by the previous regime well I don't think that's realistic I think there was always going to be a massive drop off from Abramovich's Chelsea to Boley Clearlake's Chelsea whoever the head coach was and I thought we saw signs of that drop off under Thomas Tuchel at the start of this season and we're certainly seeing signs of it now under, under Graham Potter but I would reiterate that the only, the only justification to appoint a manager like Graham Potter is to give him time, to allow him to, to get his feet under the desk, work, impose his philosophy, impose his style of play and see gradual progress. And if you appoint him, you've got to stick with him and let's hope they do that. Yeah, sure. The numbers aren't pretty, are they, Anne-Marie? Only three points against clubs in the top half of the Premier League this season. 
six points from the last eight games, I think it is. But let's look behind or even beyond those statistics. Is there anything that you see in Graham Potter as an individual who gives you confidence that he can actually turn it around? I see someone who is a highly intelligent person, who has tactical nows, who has been in the game a long, long time, understands the game, knows what the game is all about. And I had my initial reservations when he was announced that he was going to be the new manager coach, but it is what it is and you run along with it. I agree with you, Mike, that he, he needs time. He really does need time. But in you know in the world of the Premier League, the time is a nanosecond. And you're not really given that. But I think he will be because I think there is, there's not, it's not just about him though. It's about the team, the behind the setup. They've got a new recruitment setup now. Todd Bowley's now stepped down as interim sporting director. There's a lot of whirl of change. And the fact that the board, the impression I get is that the board will be sticking with him for some period of time. And when you have that vote of confidence, I know in the past when the board have said for previous managers, yes, we're sticking with them and the ne- next week they're gone. I do believe that this is the case. He just, I think for me, they saw something clearly Todd Bowley and co, because it's not just Todd Bowley, there is other people behind the doors. They clearly saw something in Graham Potter that they felt and believe he can drive Chelsea forward and he has to be given time to deliver on that plan. And if that means a wholesale of changes, the style of play, his setup, players, because that is a big squad that needs desperately some pruning, shall we say, then he needs to be given the time and space to deliver on that. Mm. Well, I found him in reflective, philosophical mood. He's not going to make a drama out of what I suppose can be charitably described as a mini-crisis, but he does know the heritage of his new club. So, Graham... Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. First time I've been back to Chelsea for a while, and when you come through the gates here, you think of the former players. Now I think of Luca Vialli, for obvious reasons. Mm. You know, he said something where you never lose. You either win or you learn. What have you learned since you've been here? Um... Well, you learn about the club because um, from the outside, of course, you have a perspective that is one of, uh, you know, top teams, top players, top managers, success. So then you learn about how, you know, this, I think always, this is almost an institution, I think, football-wise. It's a fantastic, um, you know, staff here have, have experienced some incredibly high moments, you know, top of the football tree. So there's a um, real responsibility and there's a tradition and there's a history that is powerful and I would say heavy in terms of looking around, you know, you walk around, there's trophies and there's pictures of people with success and it's incredibly um, stimulating. You you realise like, wow, what a place we're in. Mm. And then you learn about, I suppose, the the transitional period that we're in and the new ownership and what's actually left in terms of previous owners and all that was there from a leadership perspective and a group. And then obviously we're in the process of 
building back up again. Have you learned anything about yourself specifically? Because you know, when you look back at your managerial career, it's been relatively smooth. It's been you know, it, it might appear to be relatively smooth, but yeah, I, yeah I, I'm not sure it is. I don't think it has been. To be honest, there are periods of there are always periods of struggle, and I think the when I look back as a coach working in a Champions League level club, you look back and you realise the periods of struggle are the the most valuable periods to get to this point. You know, I think I've been doing 12 years or something like that with teams. There's a lot of defeats, there's a lot of victories, there's a lot of team selections, there's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of stuff going on. But actually it's the it's the bad moments, the tough moments that give you the strength, that gives you the confidence to know that you can deal with the, the next lot of problems. Because ultimately, I think sometimes you think about these big clubs and of course it's about winning in the end you know you have to but I think it's also about how you deal with the tough moments as well because if you can't deal with those you don't survive very long because mm. it can be you know quite a dehumanizing process can't it you know you've you've walked into a pretty much a perfect storm with injuries poor form unsolicited advice ritual criticism you know the, the whole nine yards how you deal with that not just as a football manager or a coach but as a human being Everybody's got their own way, I guess, and I'd like to think I'm not one of these massive eager maniacs that think I know everything about everything. So then I think that's good because it gives you humility and it gives you a, an ability to connect with people. At the same time, you also acknowledge that you're not perfect and you know you haven't done everything perfect. So the criticism that is there, whilst it's not totally correct, it's not totally incorrect either. And you have to deal with that. You have to deal with the fact that, okay, I need to learn and I need to improve and you need to take the steps for all that stuff, take responsibility. And I think that, but that's what the approach I've had throughout my career. You know, you haven't got all the answers, but you try to take responsibility and then you get better for it. Is it personally hurtful? Or do you take, no, I, I spoke to Brendan Rogers earlier in the season when, when he was the one who was getting a kick in. Hmm. And he said the experience had taught him to make this process almost automated. You know, you know the noise, you, you, know, you hear all the stuff, but you just get on and deal with the substance of your job. Is that the sort of place that you're in at the moment? I think you're always just battling for perspective. And you can't argue with people all the time. You know, people have their opinion. They'll analyse this situation and say, and their conclusion will be it's because Potter's rubbish. You know that, and there'll be people out there that will think that, and there'll be others that can look at it a different way, and look at it with a different perspective. So I think you have to accept that there's going to be criticism, and you accept that people won't like you or will disagree with you, and. And I don't think you can fight that. Certainly not my job to convince them otherwise. My job is to do my job as well as I can. And if I do that well, then that, then maybe they'll change their opinion. I mean, yeah, that's... It's, again, part of the noise is big because we live in a social media world which puts pressure, I think, on day-to-day -day journalists because it's about clicks. I don't know how easy it is for, you know, ultimately newspapers and people have to sell things. So they're competing with the clicks and clicks, I think, are generated by the contentious. Mm. 
headlines rather than necessarily balanced and true and a nice reflective piece. It's not often. Mm. And again, you have to acknowledge that it's football and there's emotions. And if you lose, then there's a responsibility that you have to get better results. And, and we all accept that as well. Mm. Now, as you say, it's an emotional game and a very human pursuit, if you like. Mm. You're basically trying to get the best out of people under pressure. Do you see that pressure in, in the players or the staff around you? Or even, you know, when you look in the mirror, do you see it in yourself? Yeah, I mean, um, of course, because the players want to win. You know, they want to win. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to lose. They want to... Everyone wants to win. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, I used to say it's um, because the feeling of winning is is nice. You know, there's a really uncomfortable feeling when you lose, and we don't like that. Is but, it a physical feeling? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it is. It does. It, is a, it manifests itself in some sort of effect to you physiologically. But again, I think you have to put it to try to theorize it that it's it's part of what makes you better. And it's part of what's got you to this point. And it's part of, I, I, that's why I pretty much like, love football, like, because I think it reflects life. There's some pain, there's incredible joy. It's often unfair. You don't know what's gonna happen. Just when you think you've got it cracked, something comes and kicks you in the backside. Just when you're on your knees, something comes and lifts you up. You know, it's an amazing game. And that's why the motions of it are so complicated and so raw, especially after the defeat, because you want to explain the defeat. You want to explain, get away this feeling. Why, why are we losing? What's happening? You know, mm. as I said, sometimes bl blaming somebody else is an easy way to get rid of that discomfort. But I'm not sure that it's the, the total solution. Mm. Is there a, a universality about what you do in terms of the way you coach is the same whether it's with the Ghana women's team or Chelsea. You have to get the best out of a group of players who have their own agendas, they have their own insecurities. Is that what you can dwell on? The big picture stuff, rather than the, oh, Potter's useless, he's lost another game. Yeah, I think you've just got to focus on your job and what that is. And, and again, it's every context is different, so I don't think you can just pick things up from wherever you've been before and just copy them. You have to understand the players. That's how we've always tried to work. You know, you want to create an environment where people feel that they belong. People feel like they're part of something. People feel like they're improving. And I, I also believe there's a, an element of choice there. You know, football's a decision-making game made by players. It's not a coach's game, it's a player's game. So you have to try to create something that enables players to feel that they're empowered to make good decisions and help them when maybe it's not the, the best one but they feel that they're part of something, they feel that they're getting better. And obviously the challenge is, as you get up and up, the level of your interventions has to be better because the quality of the player is higher and they have to deal with more pressure, they have to deal with more noise. So everything becomes more challenging. Yeah. Is one of your essential issues that challenge of being a long-term culture builder in what is an accelerated, a hyperventilating, short-term sport yeah I, I, I think we you know I've always got into this thinking and knowing what it's about which is you have to get short medium long term in my in my opinion sometimes coaches just don't care about the medium and long and they're just short term short term short term 
and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. That's, but I started my coaching path and I, and I thought, well, you can't talk about long-term if you don't get the short-term. So you have to make sure you get that, enough of that. And then whilst you're in the problem where you haven't got the short-term results, you have to analyze, well, why haven't we got the short-term results? Mm. And if the simple problem is, it's because you, i.e. me, then it's clear you, you, you lose your job. If it's as simple as that and that's the answer, then okay, we always have to, we have to live and die by that. That's what it is. Like I said, I think you'd hope people have a bit more perspective. They'll have to look at what's happening. They have to look at it in a different way, in a more intelligent way, but maybe not. It seems to me a fundamental misunderstanding of the position you found yourself in. Okay, you can look at it simplistically. Okay, we're not winning matches, so therefore there's grief all over the place. But actually, when you look at, I've been speaking to people in North America about the nature of some of the American investors who are coming into the Premier League. Obviously, I'm not talking specifically about here, but obviously it holds true. I'm told basically they come in with three objectives. Sporting success, which is where you come in. Maximising commercial potential, brand expansion, whatever you want to call it, all that good <coughs> stuff. And thirdly, real estate potential. Now, do people understand that this is not just 11 people kicking a football around a pitch? I think they do, and I think we have to be really careful because fundamentally it should always be about 11 people kicking a ball around the pitch. Because if you lose sight of that, then I think you can be in problems. That's not to say that you can't maximise your revenue, it's not to say that you can't do other things which give you a chance in a globalising you know, world where revenues are huge and people have resources and all that sort of stuff. But as I said, you know, our fans are incredibly important, they're the lifeblood of the club you should communicate to them as honestly and often as you can. And we are a football club, you know, we're football players. It is 11 v 11, but that's not to say that there's lots of things behind it. You know, the staff, there's mm. people, there's, there's resources, there's, stra you know, where we sit in a system level perspective mm. is where you also have to consider when you're analysing where we're at as a club. Yeah, because, you know, you've spoken publicly about the supportive nature of, of the, the new ownership here. How proactive have they been in sharing their big picture goal with you? And was that part of why you got involved in the first place? They've been really uh, positive, really positive. They want to want to win, they want to develop a team and a club that competes for the Premier League, the Champions League, the FA Cup, the, whatever the League Cup is called, they want a, a team that's going to do that. We, we respect and understand the tradition and the history, certainly recently, of what this club has achieved and it's an amazing achievement. And we're not saying it's going to be better or worse, but we want to build the club you know, up again to be able to compete with the Manchester Cities and Liverpools that are, that are in terms of the top end of the Premier League have taken another step forward. So that's our challenge. Two questions. To end with, if I could, mm. the first is the broader question. You know, the, there is a broader perspective to this. You're here, we well, are deemed to be here as almost a standard bearer for British coaching. Now, I think that's probably unfair, but that's the reality of how it's perceived. You know, can you actually afford to dwell on that sort of responsibility? You've got to make it. I don't think so. You know, I was speaking to another coach actually, and he was sort of saying the same things. You know, he was really wishing me well. Because he was sort of saying, if you can get these opportunities and, and succeed, then, then he could as well. Mm. 
You know, because, because it's, you, you because can only coaches speak honestly and completely candidly to one another, don't they? Because they, they they've got the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We was yeah, we was having a nice conversation, and he was very supportive and very positive and very wished me well. And there's a genuine sort of hope that things things went well, and also acknowledging the fact that it's a huge challenge. But we had full confidence, so it was nice. Yeah. The final point, then. You know, I know you're not going to give me precise time scales, I wouldn't expect you to. But what does success look like for you at Chelsea this season? Well, I think we a team that's functioning well, a team that is challenging for the Champions League, that's what we want to look towards. That's, that's still our ambition and we should always have that ambition. But at the moment we're not there and we're not there because I think the team can function in a better way. So after a year, you, you want to make sure that you've maintained the relationships you have at the club, you want to maintain the support of the players, you want to maintain the support of the staff, you want to maintain the support of the supporters and the ownership and all the stakeholders that are there. And step by step, there's a team that's putting on the pitch that they recognise, that they understand that is functioning well, that creates chances, that doesn't concede that many chances and is ultimately trying to prepare to win the top prizes in, in world football. But that's not the tomorrow is it it's going to be the day after tomorrow well it's i'd be foolish if i said it's tomorrow because the league table doesn't lie and the points we have doesn't lie but again there's some factors that we need to consider but doesn't mean to say that um, chelsea's chelsea and will always be a team that is in a club that is fighting for the big trophies that's how it is and that's what we need to remember and we need to take that responsibility on and keep moving forward well all the best thank you very much thanks for your time I found it fascinating that he was beginning to open up about almost the human cost of the initial struggle. He reminded me a bit of a swan, Dom, very serene on the surface, but probably paddling furiously beneath the waters. You know Chelsea well, and you've seen a succession of managers under pressure there. How do you think he's coping with it? I think he's he's finding it exceptionally tough and I think he's he's admitted as much that the challenge of it I thought it was quite telling that he described it as the hardest job in football in a in a press conference this week and he's, he's been hinting at that quite a lot recently and indeed in, from, from your interview with him I think you, you got that impression as well that he's he accepts that this is this has been brutal so far and and it not, I mean, it has been a perfect storm because not only have there been all the upheaval off the off the field and and you know succeeding a manager that claimed the Champions League only eighteen months ago, whatever it was when he came in, but Chelsea have, have been saddled with a pretty horrendous injury list. They're, I think their their injured team is probably better than their fit team at the moment, <laughs> um, and to have to cope with all of this at once with all the sort of weirdness of a mid-season World Cup as well, which really congested the schedule ahead of the World Cup. I mean, ri ridiculously, in that Graham Potter would have had no time to do any training with any of his players because they had games every three days. He's pretty much gone straight back into that rhythm of, of matches since they came back as well. It's It's been absolutely brutal. I think he's actually sounded a bit more like a Chelsea manager in the last week or so, really since the City games. 
I think prior to that, yeah, the swan analogy is very good. He was very calm. He was almost quite robotic with his responses. But actually, we're seeing, seeing a bit more emotion from him now. We're getting a bit more. We're sort of seeing behind the behind the curtain almost, and and the fact that it is affecting him in some ways. And he, he, you know, he's clearly stung by some of the criticism out there. I mean, he's talk, he's stuff about the media there that he mentions in in your interview. I actually think that he's probably been hurt more by hearing the fans sing Thomas Tuchel's name than than anything he's read or listened to over recent weeks. I mean, it's that that in itself is is quite difficult. But you know, he's been through tricky times at Ostersunds. It wasn't all plain sailing at Brighton those first couple of years. They finished lowly, 15th places. They're in relegation scraps for some of the season. So he will feel he can come through this, but but it's a brutal club in a brutal league with brutal expectations as well. Mm. You know, we use the perfect storm analogy, Amory. Do you expect it to clear and how can it clear? What more do you think he can do to inspire confidence, not just in him, but in the group that he has got around him? Results. Results and seeing Chelsea climb up at the, back up the table. I'm, I'm missing seeing Chelsea be a competitive team. Um, we haven't seen that for the last few weeks or so. Chelsea, to me, are a team that grind you down. And they, they're big players, brutal, very quick with the ball, don't allow you to get to the ball and score some amazing goals. And we just haven't seen that over the last few weeks. And... That, for me, then when the results start to come back in, I think the pressure will be lifted a little bit, but they need to sort out the squad as well. And the perfect storm, well, all storms do pass. You know, the winds blow them away and a new dawn and a new day and all those cliches. It's just, it's just that word about being patient with it and knowing that the storm could go on for a little while longer before things start to clear. But I think it's, for me, it is about those results. It does hurt Chelsea fans to see that they're not part of the competitions anymore. They're out of the League Cup, they're out of the FA Cup. At the best they could look for right now is climbing back into, I mean, they're in the top 10 anyway, but climbing back into at least the top six. That should be a goal for the team this year in terms of what the fans' expectations. No more than that. This is a transitional period for the rest of the season and maybe into the new season as well, as Don mentioned that he hasn't. Graham Potter didn't really get that chance to have any pre-season training with him and all that kind of thing. And he will get that chance. But for now, just getting some wins on the board, I think that's the most important thing. And, and getting those wins may well depend upon the on the fitness of key players rather than anything else. Because I don't think he's going to have time to impose philosophy and change things radically. He may have to just stick with one system, which in fantasy has done pretty much of late. There's There's been less of this sort of switching from three at the back to four at the back, even within games. He's been more solid in, in his tactical approach. I, I was I was lucky enough to be at the bridge for the 51 minutes that Chelsea have played very, very well since the resumption of the since the World Cup, which was against Bournemouth. And surprisingly, I know Bournemouth, OK, fine, Bournemouth are a team on the slide. But for those 51 minutes, guess what? Reese James was on the pitch. They need to get Reese James fit again. They need to get Ben Chilwell fit again because Chelsea, regardless of the manager, regardless of the system, if they have those two fullbacks attacking opposing teams, they're a completely different team completely different side with a totally different dynamic and without those two players I I think it will be a struggle given the nature of this squad uh, whatever they need those players fit 13 players signed since the, the new ownership came in latest of of, of, of whom Yao Felix now the economics of that 
seem to be the economics of the madhouse. Essentially, they're paying £15 million to have him for six months. But I suppose it's a needs-must situation at the moment, isn't it, Amory? I don't know if it is. I would have kind of just what Dom alluded to there about Rhys James. Why did they not go for a right-back replacement for the next few months? I, I, I don't understand. Maybe, Dom, you can explain it to me because I, I don't understand that. I don't know if it is a needs-must because you've got... You've got plenty in the midfield in terms of other players that could come in. I, I, I don't understand about Jao Felix and hopefully someone could explain it to me. I mean, it's a risk. Maybe if he does well scoring in the short term because we know Chelsea are not creating. So maybe from that point of view, but they've still got Aubameyang, Sterling out for a few weeks, maybe. They've still got Ziyech. Havertz slightly dips away, but he can come back. I don't know. It's... It's players who are, who can finish off chances and players who have proved themselves previously have fallen off the wayside a little bit. So this is an opportunity to come back. But there's too many similar players already. They're just out of form. So why go for Jao Felix? And I'm happy for someone to explain it to me, but I just think there were more pressing areas of the field that needed addressing. And that key one, as Dom mentioned, is Rhys James having a, not necessarily a backup to Rhys James, someone who is in competition with Rhys James for that position because players should be able to compete for those places. But I just think that's the more pressing issue than bringing somebody like Xiao Felix. The thing about the Felix thing was that really cracked me up, Mike. Sorry to interrupt, but the, he, he came out and said that he joined Chelsea for the project. He's there for five months. Mm-hmm. For £9.7 million for five months with no option to buy, as far as we know. So, mm. plus, and, plus £5.3 million in wages. Ooh. Well, look, I, the way that Chelsea have approached the transfer market since Bowley Clear Lake took over, money is no object. There is an argument that you, you might use this window as a, as a last opportunity for some time, potentially to recruit players with the promise of Champions League football on the horizon. Oh, you can come join us and you can play Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League next month. In the summer, they might not be able to offer that because Chelsea may be well off the pace in terms of Champions League qualification. But I'm with Anne-Marie. I don't... Look, Joe Felix is a name. He's a player who carries a certain clout largely as a result of his previous transfer fee, not because of what he's achieved at Atletico Madrid, but the fact that he once cost over £100 million. I mean, that shouldn't be enough to to make him a, a good signing for Chelsea. But I do think that his arrival might just pep things up a bit and give him a bit of a boost, potentially, at huge expense, yes. But just just maybe give the squad a bit of a fillip while they look at other areas. And they will look at other areas. They will probably sign a right back. They probably will make moves to try and get a striker in and a midfielder. You know what they're like. They'll, they'll, they'll chuck the money around in the rest of this month because... They'll see this as an opportunity to make this squad more competitive than it is. So if we're, and I don't think this is unfair to concentrate on recruitment, and it's something that actually Graham Potter can, you know, can be absolved from any blame on, because the new regime with the multiple, you know, the the the, the many-headed recruitment model that they're building is basically being created on on the run as we go this this last six weeks or so. Is it as basic, Amory, as poor signings? I.e., if you look at someone like Cucurella, to a lesser degree, probably be Kepper. You know, there's the danger, isn't it, of signing a player off one decent season? Yes, but I'd also say that 
A, they're not the only club to have done this. Other clubs have bought players off the back of one decent season. But they've also, but they, it has worked. N'Golo Kante is an example of that. He was bought off the back of one season at Leicester and was was brilliant for Chelsea until injury has cut his season down a fair bit. It's... It's a tough one for me to say that it's down to recruitment. I think the signs that the Chelsea squad needed, as I used that word before, pruning earlier in the pod, that has been on the horizon for some time. And I think the fact that, you know, with the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and all what happened with that in terms of Ramich having to go, I think that pretty much put things on hold. And then you Rudiger leaving and he hasn't been replaced and various others with contracts and stalling and... I think it's just it's been a symptomatic issue of the squad itself, but I don't think it's recruitment is the only thing. I think outside factors have impacted what Chelsea have wanted to do over the last 18 months. But it is also asking the question about who else is out there that can push Chelsea forward. I know that they're looking at some academy players, bringing some younger, fresher faces into the first team now as well. But also, isn't there a dearth? of number nines. I was hearing yesterday that there isn't a lot of number nines out there that other teams can choose from, other clubs that can choose from right now. So what is that saying? That there's a shortage of of players that could come in in the summer that can do a job for Chelsea in the way that they want? You know, we've talked about the, the perfect storm. It's going to be a tough road ahead for at least the next 12 to 18 months, I would say, for Chelsea. Yeah. Well, when you see some of the signings, Don, uh, you know there is this. It's the it's the youth of some of these signings which are really striking. When I mean, you think about Carney, Chuk Wumaker, Benoit Badashile, Andre Santos, David Detro, Fafana, they're all around about twenty. They're not going to contribute realistically immediately. So this is everything is building up to this being a long term project. Final question on this one, really. What do you think is the best that Chelsea can hope for out of this season? You know, I know when I asked uh, in a roundabout way, Graham, that he basically said, well, he was talking about a year, wasn't he? What's the best they can get out of this season? European qualification of some kind, a bit of momentum to carry into the summer, a bit more belief. They want to probably, I don't know, get rid of the, some of the poison, some of the mute, sense of mutiny that's that's starting to to swirl around the club. If if they have a a promising run and and people see evidence of of progression within the within the team, maybe some of those some of those kids that Chukwuemenka potentially principal amongst them, I think, and maybe Badashili as well, actually making a mark in the in the first team and and looking as if they you know they can be the future of the club. I think. If, you, you, you are talking about small things and the small evidence of progress because it's at the moment we're we're witnessing a team that's ten points off the Champions League places going into this derby against Fulham, and really in a position that they haven't been in since Mourinho's nightmare twenty fifteen sixteen campaign. But look, I think all of it requires a context, as, as Potter is stressing. And I'm sure Bowley Clearlake would stress as well. Those players that they brought in that you mentioned there, you linked, a lot of those youngsters are not necessarily brought in to play initially for Chelsea. They might be brought in to play for some of the clubs that might suddenly become part of an ownership group that Bowley's been going on about for since he since he took up the reins at, at Stamford Bridge. You know, if you get Fofana going off to play for a 
if Chelsea bought a club, say, in Portugal and, and developing his game there and then coming back, maybe he could be the number nine option that, that Anne-Marie mentioned. Maybe he could be the future in a couple of, a couple of years' time, get back into that Chelsea setup with with more goals and more experience under his belt. And it's it's that's how they're looking at it. And I think that's where a lot of those recruitment teams that you mentioned, the Vivelles and the Win Stanleys who've come in, I think they're looking at that model as well, not just the Chelsea first team now. So maybe maybe we should cut them some slack and say, well, actually, by signing a player like Felix for five months, they almost tie themselves over until until that, that recruitment team with its data-led analysis and, and vast scouting networks that they're setting up now can come into play in the, in the summer and, and, and make an impact then. It's We have to give it the context of everything is, is more long-term. And if that means that there's going to be some short-term pain, which they're enduring at the moment and which they will continue to endure for the foreseeable future, realistically, regardless of what they do against Fulham and Palace, then as long as there's a strategy towards you know, what's two, three years down the line, then I think the fans probably will accept that. And they've got to finish mm. above Fulham as well, Dom. <laughs> At the moment, they're the third best team in West London, aren't they? They're yeah, behind Fulham it? and Brentford. So, I mean, it's 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 quite remarkable. But And they haven't lost to Fulham since when? 2006? Indeed. Uh, well, it's it's quite something. Well, to, to other news, Anne-Marie, Manchester Derby at Old Trafford, Saturday lunchtime on BT Sport. Do you think this could be the coming of age of... Uh, Eric Tang Hag as Manchester United manager. I've got to say, for the first time in a long time, I'm actually excited to see this one play out. I'm actually excited to see a Manchester derby against a team in terms of Manchester United heading into it. Only I think it was like one goal conceded in six straight wins across all competitions and they're looking good. And they're firing. I mean, you know, some fans might say, well, Man United have got easy wins against the likes of Charlton and Everton and, and you know, Wolves and, and Bournemouth. But at the end of the day, results don't lie. And with each win that Manchester United have got, it's breed more confidence and more light in their steps. So this is going to be a real test for Eric Ten Hag to see where the team is at. And, you know, Man City are going to be feeling sore after the, um, in every sense of the word, after the result the loss against Southampton last night. So they're going to be gunning for this one as well. And Man United will fancy themselves. So that's why I'm really, really excited to see how this is going to play out on Saturday. Mm. What do you think, Dom, the wider lessons are of the way he has imposed his authority on a squad, which, you know, frankly, was a bit of a rabble at times, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, well, it was. And look, it's it'll it'll help him that Cristiano Ronaldo is no longer at the club. The, the way that he dealt with that situation uh, and even little things like like Rashford oversleeping and leaving him out the starting lineup that 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 has allowed him the opportunity to demonstrate discipline to show that he is in control and I don't know it's chicken and egg isn't it which one was first was he in discipline first or was it his desire to Im- impose that structure on, on on discipline on the players but I suspect it's a bit of both I, I just I feel that he can do that from a position of relative relative power because the fans have seen progress. They've seen the team winning games and they've they've enjoyed watching the side put some rivals to the sword. And and the style of play has been good. He's he seems to have rejuvenated Marcus Rashford on the pitch. And I think they they backed him through that, which has almost given him this the authority to do what he wants with the squad and, and dictate what how he wants to do, and it's it's the first time in a, in a in a long time really that we've 
we've looked at United and thought, oh, yeah, they, they've got a, a head coach of proper clout here in his pomp, as opposed to, a, say, a Mourinho that, that looked a bit faded when he got to Old Trafford. And, yeah, I, I'm like Amory. I think I think this will be... This will be a real test. This will be a proper test of uh, how far they've come and, and and City's powers of recovery as well. Mm. You spoke about the dearth of number nines earlier, Anne-Marie. You know, United have got their own search. I suppose it helps never to be completely surprised in the January transfer window because it can get a bit surreal. But is Veghorst really the answer? You know, there's shades of Igalo there, aren't there? Yeah, they, I, I saw on social media, Mike, they're calling him Igalo 2.0. Um, <laughs> it might work. I mean, he's, you know, the World Cup, he showed exceptionally well how, to, you know, with his pressing and his work rate as well. It is a team that, you know, Man United is a team that create chances, but there is a, a small pool to choose from right now and also there's a question marks over the long term because Man United being Man United and the fans they want a big name is he at that level that is required right now for Manchester United I don't know let's see how it plays out over the next few weeks but there are big changes coming with the club potentially exploring options of a sale which means funds are limited right now it's not a case that the Glazers if they ever open their checkbook and go right this is the player that we're going to sign because we've got the money to do that they're exploring options about how to move the club forward potentially selling the club so the pool of money isn't there so for now Eric Tanha gets some sort of backing in inverted commas and the players are responding to him which is great you're starting to see your style of play as for Veghorst, uh, I'm excited to see what he could bring to Manchester United. I know I'm willing to give him a go, but I, I'm, a, I'm a neutral. As a Manchester United fan, I'm not exactly sure they're overwhelmed by the appointment. Yeah. What about City? They're in an interesting moment. I, I don't know if you, like me, were really surprised by, by that loss at Southampton in the League Cup. You know, they're a traditional second-half team. They acquire momentum. They've got the, the squad depth. I found it really interesting examining Pep Guardiola in all this. He's talking about body language dictating some of his selection decisions. He's almost sifting through it all after the World Cup, isn't he? Yeah, it's 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 almost... I mean, look, City are, are not inconsistent like other teams are inconsistent. You know, their inconsistencies might consist of one match where they lose or play slightly off the off the boil. But I suppose, you, I don't know, is it, is it the case? I, I sort of have this idea, this notion floating around my head that, that they maybe start the season slightly like that occasionally and they might have the odd aberration. I remember a loss at Spurs right at the beginning of last season, wasn't it? And it's it's slightly... It takes them a while to get maybe into a into a proper City rhythm. And it's almost like the World Cup might have... I've done that again. I mean, I didn't think they were brilliant at Stamford Bridge last Thursday when they played in the league. They were very good against a broken Chelsea in the FA Cup at the weekend. But sort of the the performance at Southampton sort of was was almost reminiscent of that game last week, last Thursday, when they said they were punished this time and 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 that their attacking movement didn't quite click in the way. I mean, no shots no shots on target at St Mary's, which is fairly remarkable given where Southampton are in the Premier League. You wouldn't you wouldn't have seen that coming at, at all. So maybe it is that. Maybe it is just sort of building up momentum again after 
after the World Cup. And, and as we go back to previously, it's, it's, these are exceptional circumstances. They've also struggled slightly away from home in terms of scoring goals and converting chances. I know they scored three at Leeds, but but I don't think they've been that prolific by their high standards away from home. And I don't know, maybe that's a legacy of, of the slight tweaks they've made to their to their approach this year with a number nine, with, with Haaland in, as an option. And maybe sometimes that the unfamiliarity sort of rears itself a bit with, with City and that, that may, may come into it. But yeah, but, but, but Pep, the psychologist, will be looking at it and he, he will see that, that some players inevitably have come back slightly different from that World Cup and that, that is translating itself into body language. I think that was inevitable. We spoke about that before the World Cup. There would be emotional fallout for these, these guys as well as physical fallout. Some of them went to the World Cup and did exceptionally well and and came back buoyed. Others didn't fulfil what they were want, they were meant to do, what they thought they were going to do at that at that competition and that tournament. And if, it may take a while to sort of get them back and get their their focus back at at, at sort of more mundane club level football. So I, I think even Pep is is in uncharted territory here. Hmm. A match closer to your heart, Amory, the North London derby. Um, <laughs> Arsenal, you know, it's a different team with a different vibe to the one beaten by Spurs you know, 3-0 in May, isn't it? Yes, uh, but uh, I'm still treating every match with caution, um, as we <laughs> see with what happened with Arsenal against Newcastle, for example. And of course, there's going to be peaks and troughs. There's going to be highs and lows as we now enter into the, what I call the business end of the season. Look, Tottenham are going to be buoyed by the fact they're coming into this with two successive wins. They will be feeling sore about what happened last time when they met Arsenal and walked away with their heads down to their shoulders. So they've had plenty of time. I do not want to hear Antonio Conte moaning afterwards if the match doesn't go his way that he didn't have enough time to prepare because they've had about eight days since their last match with their win over Portsmouth in their FA Cup. So, you know, it's... It's again, it's an exciting one for the neutrals. It's very exciting. Tottenham will fancy themselves. Arsenal will be riding the wave at the moment, the momentum that they have sitting at the top of the table and they'll be feeling confident and their record away from home is, is better than last season. So yeah, it's um, Tottenham will fancy themselves to stop Arsenal in their tracks. And this has come at the perfect time I would say this is a good time to have this derby and it's a big test for Arteta because I think there'll be a lot of eyes on him watching to see how he reacts in the technical area when he steps out the technical area as well because if things are not going Arsenal's way they could be in trouble again because they're you know they've got a FA charge hanging over their heads after what happened in their previous match they just need to be a little bit careful and try not to let Tottenham get underneath their skin which is going to be quite hard. Uh, I love the way you speak with the pessimism of the, the true believer, Amory. That's great. Um, I, Mike, I like the bit where, where Amory just said that they're in the business end of the season. We're not even halfway through yet. <laughs> <laughs> just feels like the business end, it just, doesn't it? It does. It really does. I quite agree with you. <laughs> on on that point, though, just with Arsenal, I'll ask you to dwell on Tottenham if I could, please, Don. But Amory, uh, Eddie and Ketia. Are there still doubts about him as a as a, a viable, consistent replacement for um, Gabriel Jesus? Do you know, I don't know if you've seen, gents, on social media, there was a video of Eddie Nketiah's trainer had put out about his transformation from what his body shape was in 2019 to what it is today. Yeah. He has yeah. really he's put... He's stacked now, he's isn't he? He's proper stacked. 
and he's really put in the work and I don't think 2019 Eddie would be able to do what 2022 Eddie is doing now I really think he he's come of age he looks more assured he looks more confident in himself as well and he's not a poacher like Gabriel Jesus they are very two different players of what they can bring to the table and I think Eddie, you know, there was a lot of talk about is he going to be able to step in Gabriel Jesus's shoes? There's no shoes to fill. Eddie Nketiah is doing it in his way and his reward is getting the goals for Arsenal. So I'm enjoying watching him play. He's a natural goal scorer as well. He's had what I think I read somewhere 158 minutes per goal compared to 290 minutes per goal for Gabriel. But Gabriel is the one who creates the chances and he's a decent passer. But for me, Eddie Nketiah is a natural finisher and I'm enjoying him watching him on the pitch. Mm -hmm. Well, to Tottenham then, Dom, it does seem to be a bit business as usual. You've got conjecture around Daniel Levy's business plans, Qatar being mentioned in conjunction with a, a billion pound stake. And of course, you've got Antonio Conte, you know who would basically be looking for the rain clouds in a um, in, in a heat wave, wouldn't they? What sort of state do you think Tottenham are going into their derby? Well, well, they should be in a better place than they were, you know, upon the resumption. Really, I mean, they, they've their last two games have have provided them with a four 0 away win at Crystal Palace, and then the win over Portsmouth. I mean, I, I don't think Conte will be entirely satisfied with either performance, and I'd like to hope he wouldn't be because. The first half at Sellers Park, they were pretty, pretty slack to be honest, and it looked like a the hangover from uh, recent form was was still very much in uh, in play. Um, better after half time when Harry Kane woke up, and then Pompey. There were there were long periods of that game where they didn't quite find the rhythm that they, they needed to, and I think Spurs fans are becoming very accustomed to that. So I don't think they're. I think even with those two results bolstering confidence to a certain extent, I don't think they're they're on top of the world at the moment. They still feel a bit of a tinderbox in terms of issues off the pitch. I think it was you know as a look as a suffering Crystal Palace fan watching the goals flying in at Sellers Park, it did strike me as slightly odd that the chance in the away end were all about Daniel Levy out. I mean, if we were winning four 0 away from home, I wouldn't be chanting against the chairman. But that does reflect <laughs> the situation at. Uh, at the club and the suspicion around the scenes, and and I think this this notion that they, the fans appreciate they've got an elite manager, but an, as you say, a manager who's very rarely happy with his lot and always wants something more, and a, a chairman at that club that isn't really always willing to provide that because because of the business model. Uh, it's an uneasy relationship. It was always going to be an uneasy relationship, and when you consider that the next three games in the league are Arsenal, Man City. Fulham away actually, and then actually four games. They go, they they have City again after that. I I think we should probably come back and assess where Spurs are on the sixth of February after those four fixtures. I think that'll give us a better indication with the transfer window closed and those four games under their belt as to actually how good they are. You mentioned Harry Kane there, Dom. You know, once again, he's being linked to Manchester United in the summer. His future is being linked to that of Antonio Conte. Is there any smoke without fire? The United links are, yeah, you link a player to a to a big club, but as as Amory said earlier, 
United are potentially up for sale. What the current ownership isn't going to lavish out the type of funds to buy Harry Kane, and maybe the new ownership might if they came in. But they would, you'd imagine, they'd have paid a fair chunk to buy the club in the first place, and it would take quite a lot to to lure Harry Kane away. I just think that whenever whenever Spurs are struggling as a side, and yet Kane is the player that sets them apart, those links are inevitable. He's never going to be completely content if if, if the team isn't functioning in the way that, that it should be. And Harry Kane has got lofty ambitions. He wants to be winning stuff. Uh, if Spurs aren't capable of doing that, then there will always be this slightly unnerving undercurrent of, well, maybe he'll see his future elsewhere. But I, I don't really see it, him leaving. And, and as, as for Conte, I mean, look, he, yeah, it, it would pain I'm sure it would pain Harry Kane to, to see an elite manager, elite coach leaving the club, if if that's what happens eventually. But, you know, that's happened before with Spurs and Harry Kane has been the constant. So I'm, I'm sure he would be just as committed to the to the team and the club under a, under a new man as well. I mean, it's, it's such a, a fluid situation. I, 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 it's not worth worrying about it at the moment, I don't think. Mm. What about Liverpool, Emery? Are they vulnerable at Brighton? And there certainly seem to be an object lesson in how things can change really quickly. I think it's it's. If I was a Liverpool fan, I'd be extremely concerned about what's going on. You use that word vulnerable, yes, because Brighton are flying at the moment under Deserby. I mean, this is another match I'm excited to see as a, as a neutral. Liverpool's injury list is growing, and key players. You know, Don mentioned about earlier that Chelsea, when they're missing, you know, two or three clear players, things have things change. And I think you could, I would argue, you could apply that to Liverpool at the moment. You know, potentially. No Virgil van Dijk. We know that Diaz is out, Jota is out and others. They haven't kept a clean sheet in eight, but they are creating big chances. The last time that Liverpool met Brighton ended as a three-all draw, which was wonderful to listen to. I was listening to it on the radio. It was a fantastic match to listen to. So I think, yes, they are vulnerable. And this is a test, I would say, actually, this is a big test for Liverpool to see where they're at and and what could be a good result for them in terms of this season, yet getting into Europe, of course. I wouldn't say that they're in trouble. That's not something I would say that Liverpool are right now, but I think that word you use, vulnerable, is exactly the way to describe them right now. Mm. Does Erby, Dom, he, he seems to be another developer of talent, doesn't he? Do you think he's able will be able to continue the evolution of that Brighton team when, you know, the reality is that players will be sold around him. You know, Moses Casado's being hawked around, you know, Spurs are meant to be interested. It's been seamless at Brighton, hasn't it? The thing about Brighton, they're, they're so clever in terms of the, the recruitment. I mean, look, it would be interesting to see how, how big an influence Paul Winstanley wielded now that he's gone to Chelsea and whether that will change anything in terms of of the recruitment setup and where David David Weir would now come in and 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 maintain this as you say seamless transition but but I look at Brighton and Brighton are one of those clubs and there're very few out there Brentford you might argue another but Brighton are one of those clubs that can sell two of their stellar talents in the summer and a month later they can look a better team because they, they they have the replacements there in, in situ almost, or, or they had them identified and they just brought them in. 
And they did the same with the management thing, really. I mean, Graham Potter walked out. That was billed, not least by me, as a, oh, this is a disaster. This might be the beginning of the end. Well, of course it wasn't. Deserby's arguably an upgrade from, from what we've seen so far. You know, Graham would, would probably object to that. But um, it's, I think that I mean, the, the fans are rejoicing in a in a manager that's, that's playing a, a thrilling, thrilling attacking style of football. They're scoring goals for fun. I mean, you know... Five at Middlesbrough last last week, but that that maintains this ridiculous run of run of games. Four in the at, at Everton previous week, three at Southampton, two against the league leaders Arsenal, albeit in defeat. Three at three at Arsenal in the EFL Cup, three at Wolves, four against Chelsea. I mean, it's frightening how many goals they're scoring. When is the Palace game? Because I'm going to go into hibernation when that happens. <laughs> but it's it's it's. I mean, they've done fantastically well. Deserby looks a proper quality manager. They've got great players and it's the type of club you look at and even if they did sell Moses Casado and they will be suitors for him, it, it won't just be Spurs, there'll be Liverpool's and Chelsea's will all be looking at a player of that calibre to pet the midfield up. But Brighton will have somebody else to come in and they'll do just as good a job and they'll be just as strong and they'll keep progressing because that's the type of club they are. Mm. As a final point, uh, Anne-Marie, Don mentioned Thomas Frank there. Brentford have got Bournemouth who are stuttering uh, under Gary O'Neill. Do you think Frank, although he signed a new contract which takes him to the summer of 2027, do you think he's going to be the next big managerial move on the block? Thomas Frank is a decent manager and I don't think he necessarily gets the recognition for what he's delivered. He's somebody, I was looking at his team setups over the last, uh, since the beginning of the season, he loves a 3-5-2, hasn't deviated away from that. The wins that he's got, over the you know top six teams, including you know Arsenal, of course, Chelsea, Liverpool, City, Manchester United, and there's you know there are no eyes on him. I'm surprised there's no more talk. There's not a lot of talk of when those big jobs in inverted commas come up that his name is not in the hat for those opportunities. It's a team that, for me, they like to soak up the pressure, and he he nails the tactics, and they can score goals when Ivan Tiny's not firing or if he's not on the pitch. So I think he des- des- he deserves more recognition. He deserves more accolades. And if he's not named in the pool for Premier League Manager of the Year, I will be astounded. Yeah, he's certainly doing a, an amazingly good job. But as Graham Potter has discovered, life comes at you fast in modern football. Occasionally, though, there are moments to pause and take in what's been achieved. I think it's only fitting that we do so to mark the retirement of Gareth Bale. No one produced by the domestic game has won more European Cups. He picked up 15 medals with Real Madrid on his own terms and in his own way. Wales and international football was what really mattered to him. Now, in an age where players are expected to conform, Bale was his own man, a breath of fresh air. All the best to him. That just leaves me to thank Dom and Anne-Marie for their insight and to express my gratitude for Graham Potter's honesty under pressure. We have some more big interviews scheduled, so watch this space. Hold up, what was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.